This is Naked by the Future Farm, where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. Brought to you by Vladimir Kobrestinska and Nectarios Lolios. And remember to subscribe, follow and rate Naked to help us share it with the world. Hey buddy, hey Nectarios. Hi Vladi. Where are you? I'm at home in London. Yeah, Beautiful. actually. I can- I can see that. I'm not sure why I asked that. That was a stupid question. Where I think you? I wanted you to ask me because people don't know where I am. So <laughs> no, I'm not going to ask it. Hi, Vladi. Okay, where, where are you? <laughs> you can see the bunk bed behind me. Guys, you can't see that. But this is something today, you know. So I'm at my parents' place in Slovakia. Uh, it's sort of in the middle of nowhere, but in the middle of beautiful mountains. And the one precious thing that I have on my Zoom calls is that I have this bunk bed from, you know, which I share with my sister. I think that's the way you, we, we, you say it in English, right? The double bunk bed. bed. Yeah, yeah. Bunk yeah. Bed, yeah. And I, it's such an icebreaker. Like people keep to asking me about this. Like, is that really where you sleep? And I was like, yeah, still. Anyhow, so how are you? I'm well. Um, well, I'm really good. You're traveling um, tomorrow, right? Yes, it's, I'm flying to Greece again. Mm, you're going to yes, Greece. Yes, so I'm very, very excited. Part family, part work. Um, but there is an irony in this because we actually tried to report this once before, where I just come back from Greece and didn't That's go too well because I was feeling a bit all over the place. Yeah. So much better. No, I was just about to say that it's good to see you in a good energy, high energy. And uh, yeah, guys, it, this does happen when you record a podcast that you do re- re-record. We got the feedback from our editor. Hi, Catherine. We love you. Uh, that, hey, guys, you just have to re-record this. The energies were not fit in and uh, we were glad to do it. Um, it's a pretty special episode that we are recording. I mean, we are officially not we're off the second season we haven't been recording for a few weeks um but there was this one gift that we wanted to really give you which was to look back on our second season nectarius do you want to say a little bit more about what we're doing now um sure um so this is a best of episode which we haven't done before so we thought as we're getting Uh, guests who have really rich and interesting stories, uh, maybe it's a good way to reflect a little bit on on what we heard, what we've learned, uh, pick a few nice passages that we we enjoyed, but also highlight the different things that we care about at the Future Farm. Yeah, I mean, there was so much. And and frankly, when we were doing the selection, like we loved all the episodes, so it was quite hard. And then what we tried to do for you guys is to pick parts and highlights of the episode even that was hard not even to pick some of the people but also within the individual episodes to pick the parts that we liked and we sort of thought like they had a strong message that we would like to highlight um it's been very interesting process i'm glad we've done it it's been uh it wasn't straightforward let's put it that way but uh we pushed through and and i'm glad that this is this small baby is coming to life i actually wanted to highlight the extra naked I hope it's not too egocentric but uh in terms of that I felt that 
it, it just made for, for me personally, this whole theme and conversation that we have here about mental health, even more personal. And, and I personally, personally, personal found a lot of value in that, um, I guess in relationship with you, Nectaris, but also sort of the time and space to really properly reflect on the conversation with the guests. Um, it felt more intimate. Uh, I hope that you guys enjoyed it it would be brilliant to get some more feedback from you on on extra naked we are certainly planning on also building it for the third season um but that was probably the major highlight for me but there were many more so but yeah extra naked and maybe for context if somebody's listening for the first time in our first season we had a guest episodes and that was it in a second season we decided that Every week after the guest episode, Vladi and I sit down and reflect on the episode, reflect on the guests, reflect on what we've learned. And also, yeah, talk a little bit more about what's going on in our own lives. And it became a bit of a mutual coaching support therapy session, which I thought was amazing. And I really, really loved it, especially because it became much easier for us. Uh, also, I think uh, if somebody look, listens back to all the extra episodes also, uh, a bit more open and a bit more vulnerable than at the beginning. There was a lot of downloading stuff that you don't necessarily share publicly, which which mm -hmm. some of our listeners said they, they actually really appreciated. Um, for me, in terms of highlights, it's more, I'm glad that we managed to do something that we're very keen on from the beginning, which is being as diverse as possible when it came to the selection of the guests. Yay. So the fact that we were across ages, across genders across sexualities but also different types of entrepreneurs so people who are not traditional entrepreneurs from the sports world from the arts world or kind of the investor perspective the the research and scientist perspective that makes me very happy and yeah. then this is something we're definitely also very keen to take into into the future kind of of, of the naked podcast because that's really super important to us in the drive to change the conversation around mental health and entrepreneurship, but also looking at where are the parallels to other high performance, other people who are under extreme pressure and um, highly visible. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And that was, that was the second priority or <laughs> highlight. So we are uh, in sync. Um, maybe a last point really, before we go into this, like, I just want to take a second to really thank to the whole team that is behind this with Catherine, our editor, with the wider team and Laura helping us to sort of share this to the wider world and um, our, our, our producer back in Prague. So it would never sort of become what it is without them. Uh, and they are part of the creative sort of soul and heart of Naked. So thank you. And with that, um, yeah, let's just go into it. So we picked some passages. So what okay. we'll do is we're going to introduce the guest briefly, and then we'll we'll share one of the passages of the conversation we thought was really insightful and useful. A uh, bit of a teaser for people who don't know us, a bit of a reflection for the people who do know us. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Who should we start with? Who should okay. we start with? Um... So I want to start on a pretty strong note. Um, I want to start with somebody who does not necessarily tick the box of a conventional entrepreneur, although we already said that we don't have a box for an entrepreneur. 
She is a double golden medalist. Um, she has many more identities, as you will learn, and her name is uh, Dame Kelly Holmes. And the part that I particularly loved and, and why I think that she certainly should be in this, in this highlight best of is because um, Kelly not only talked to us about the mental health challenges she experienced as a top athlete, uh, and, and that was certainly moving and, and, and in some way disturbing, intimidating, but the part that we picked was actually about what she called climbing a mountain. And that is really about what a lot of, whether they're top athletes or entrepreneurs or other high performers experience, which is the sort of clash or questioning of your identity after you meet and reach your big goal. And for her, that was the gold medal. And the question of asking herself, who am I, if I'm not the athlete, who is Kelly was a big one. So I think, I hope you will find a lot of um, value in it. Uh, I certainly did. And I know that a lot of people around me who are not top athletes, they find themselves in a job or they are uh, in, with their own businesses uh, and they are thinking about exiting it and, and plugging it back into life, found a lot of parallel in there. So I hope you enjoy it. And yeah, this is Kelly Holmes. And the other thing that's very different in sport and business is sports black and white. You know, you win, you lose. <laughs> um, mm. Business has a few more variables of what means success, you know. Yeah, hence the question, really, because I was I, I do remember this story. Ted Turner said the story that when he was who is the founder of CNN and many other businesses were mm. sort of well known, recognized and. He once said the story that he was climbing a ladder in his life and there was a back at the top of that hill and he was walking towards getting the back. And when he climbed the hill, opened the back, it was empty. <laughs> so I was wondering, you know, sort of in reflection of that when, when I was just trying to understand the gold medals or the world record, what happens in that moment? And you sort of shared a little bit around like, I like now is the moment I worked hard for this, right? I yeah. do deserve this. What else is happening there? Uh, well, say like, uh, well, I suppose after winning the gold medals, like in Athens, there was, a, well, firstly, it was the, oh my God, I've done it. <laughs> it's like, you know, kind of the realization that you've done it is massive, as well as the, pinch me moments like am I still going to start you know I, I remember coming back home and to the UK and even three months later you know it's still a bit mad because I was the mm. first woman ever to win two gold medals at any one games and uh you know I said to my mum can you like just pinch me because like, have I actually done this I felt like I was going to wake up you know and still be on the start line it was surreal that's probably the word it was surreal. When you work so hard for something, you don't put yourself in the position of what it's going to feel like when you've done it. So when you've actually done it, when it's that big, it's sort of like, what am I now meant to feel like? You know, mm. of course, I was, it was just most amazing feeling, the opportunities I got, but equally that bit, 
almost was just a world that you can't ever envisage, you know, and a, a process you can't envisage. After that, then you start to think to yourself, okay, who am I now? Because once you've reached the top, that you've only focused about the top, you haven't f- focused on over the top, you haven't focused on behind that mountain as you just described it. You don't focus on that bit, you only focus on getting to the top of the mountain. When you get, and then you're going the opposite side, it's like, well, what's this world? You know, yeah. I have no idea now. Because now all my dreams have gone, all my aspirations, my fight, my structured life, my environment that I've known every minute of the day is now gone. Because now I don't know what I'm going for. Mm. That side of it is, I think, the hardest side. You know, even if it was hard getting to the top of the mountain, it's harder to compute the next stage. Mm. Because do you build another mountain? What's that mountain going to be? Do you start from the, you know, the hill and look ahead and think, okay, this is where I'm going. But if you don't know where you're going, then what? So then you have all these variables in your mind about who you are. You question, you know, yourself again. You then question your ability to be somebody different, to reshape and reform yourself. And that's what I've had to do the last sort of 15 years. Well, you kind of introduced another concept, right? Because you actually said, who am I after this, right? So it's all about identity. Mm-hmm. And we've noticed this a lot with entrepreneurs is that they are the business of the business is them. And mm-hmm. our very first guest on the podcast did actually say verbatim, it's like, well, if I no longer follow this cosmic mission, who am I, right? And because he decided to step back and walk away and go corporate. Um, but it is a really interesting one because it really kind of, no matter how much achievement you had in your life and you you kind of talked about your confidence, it's sort of, if you start something new, right? How do you translate the achievements? And it, because if it's starting from the bottom, I'm sure it comes with all the insecurities and the questions. And you've done this now a few times, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like I have many lives. <laughs> I'm a cat. <laughs> Just hope I don't get to the end yet. <laughs> yeah, but it's very inspirational, you know, for a lot of people because, as Nectaris is describing, this is indeed what we keep hearing and even ourselves really experiencing yeah. is their rebuild, reboot. So, how do you navigate this? What happened after you climbed that mountain in the athletic world? Yeah. How did you support yourself in that? What you said, you have to ask yourself the big question. Yeah. So I suppose it's taken, it took a long time to reframe my mindset to not just think that all I have in life is one massive goal and then I go only for that because that's all I've done. So when I was 14, I wanted to be in the army as a physical training instructor and I wanted to be an Olympic champion. I joined the army when I was 17, became a physical training instructor when I was 21 left when I was 27 to pursue my athletics career, won two gold medals at 34. Like, what? I've been doing it for 40, 20 years. Like, that's what I've known. So how do I then suddenly go, oh, now oh, I want to be? It's so hard, you know. So you have to reframe mm. who you are. So some of what's happened, I suppose, I mean, I'd probably say the last three years, I've trained them, changed and learned the most about myself, which I'll come to in a minute. Like now I can honestly say I know what I want to do and be and how. But that period up to it was very, you know, I was going up and down with emotions. You know, I find something that I'm passionate about. I put all my energy into it and then realise it's not fulfilling the void, you know. 
Uh, I just do it because I feel like I have to put my mind into something because that's how I've always been. But it wasn't as big or as, you know, rewarding as the other two things. Mm -hmm. So when I've built it, I still put exactly the same heart and mind and effort in, but the reward's not the same in in terms of the feeling. So I was national school. I was like, uh, when I first retired, so one of our prime ministers, Gordon Brown, came into power. And on his first day of being in power, I met him at a charity event. And I just thought, okay, and I don't know why, I just thought, right, I've got to find an opportunity here to speak to him. So I just said, I said, oh, Prime Minister, congratulations. I'd love to come and speak to you. I've got an idea. But I had no idea. I don't even know where it came out of my mouth because I'm not like the most, I am like confident in everything I do when I do it, but I'm not the kind of, oh, look at me person. You know, so I just thought, oh, just do it. And anyway, he said, oh, come to my office tomorrow. And I'm thinking I've got to come up with an idea between today and tomorrow what I want to speak about. So, <laughs> so I just thought to myself, okay, overnight, okay what can I do what is my the biggest power I've got at the moment is inspiring young people because I just won two gold medals you know like just retired everybody knew me okay so I want to be national school sport champion I want you to fly me all over the country I want to inspire the next generation to believe in themselves through sport because that's how I started my PE teacher telling me I could be good at something so he said, yes, love it. And that was it. Three years, I was national school sport champion, traveling around the country, just inspiring people and things. Then during that time, I suddenly thought to myself, and it's all again starts with the passion, is that we I wasn't getting to see areas that really needed support like I was going to all the areas and the schools that had the financial backing that had brilliant facilities you know and the kids were loving life and sport and I was like well what about all the ones that are left out you know there must be areas of deprivation areas that actually if I go in there and talk to them they could be the next thing so anyway I just thought right I'm going to start a charity then because I'd start it because I knew again because I'd been to charity since I was 16 that I could make a difference to people's lives because my PE teacher made a massive difference for mine, believing in me. So I started my charity from nothing, like literally from scratch. And I decided that I wanted to help children of areas of deprivation become somebody through purpose. At the same time, you asked me about this transition bit. There were so many athletes that had put on the same amount of time, effort, years, who had nothing, no platform whatsoever, completely depressed, Loss of identity, loss of personality, loss of any direction whatsoever. And I thought, I've got to use the platform I have to help them. So then it was transitioning athletes. So I then, you know, that's now 13 years old, my charity, 400,000 plus young people we've helped and 750 athletes transitioned. Love it. I was chairing the board. I didn't know how to chair a board. I mean, like, who teaches these, these things? But it was my charity. Well, I've got to control it. So I chaired a board with, you know, 10 board members for te- eight years, stood down because people were talking about this word good governance, looked into that, and it's like, you know, don't hang on to something when other people can do better. I thought, okay, so I'll stand down now. I'm president. I was just winging it. I was just literally <laughs> learning on the job and <laughs> learning things that I thought, okay, And then I suddenly just sort of had this thing of, I need to find things that, like, 
that was great. I loved it. And I do love it. Of course, my charity, you know, I'm so proud of it. Probably one of the proudest things I've done. But it was almost like, so what's the next thing? Mm-hmm. And I can kind of always find the next thing, which people like me is like driven. You either can just go, okay, I'm going to chill out now and do nothing. But like, I don't want to, you know, I want to still learn and thrive. So the past three years have been the biggest change for me because my mother passed away, which like literally tore my heart apart. And I thought she hasn't got another day to live. I want to live like till 100, you know, because I want to keep learning. I want to stay young. I want to whatever. And um, I thought, okay, so I've got to do more things. So So that was Kelly, uh, pretty strong. Uh, You know, she had this vibrant energy. Like whenever I re-listen to the episode, like I I feel like I'm radiant, sort of floating. Um, So here is your turn, Nectarius. Which one would you pick? I picked Stefan Kollenberg. Um, Stefan Kollenberg is a serial entrepreneur and a mental health advocate. Um, And the reason that episode resonated with me was one of the things we're really keen on is is to make sure uh, we help people understand how to recognize when something's wrong. And with Stefan, that was very strong, just hearing his story on how he went through these ups and downs repeatedly. And this particular segment is about how to listen to the signals of your body. And sometimes they're internal signals, but sometimes it's also other people having to tell you that something's wrong. Um, I really kind of thought that this was important, but also then we talked a little bit more about the tools. What do you use to actually come out of it, Um, right? So once you've identified that something is working, self-reflection, uh, scanning yourself, uh, yeah. then going, okay, what, what are the tools that you can use? Um, overall, one of the things that was particularly poignant for me in that episode, because the episode is all about addiction, was there was an element, a conversation around addiction and substance abuse, which is the more traditional definition of addiction. And then there was a conversation around being addicted to being in a startup and burning yourself out and then going back into the same cycle again and how to break out of it. So that's what resonated with me. And here's Stefan Kollenberg. I feel like we need to take a deep breath, all of us. <laughs> Just like, because there is a lot, honestly. Yeah. yeah. Is, there, is there a difference between you realizing yourself I need help and going to join one of the programs as you did before or your your mates your co-founders uh, the people who spend most of the time sitting you down and going mm. you know what practically saying and i'm being provocative here saying you've been through this before and you managed to recognize it yourself but this time we need to tell you because you're not seeing this so I didn't, when I first got clean, I didn't recognize it myself, actually. With, with the thing that prompted me, I had, is, is interesting. This is a great question. Um, the thing that got me to get clean and go to these meetings was that I had one like really, really bad night out. A bunch of stuff happened. Won't get into the details, but it was just a very bad night. My roommates at the time who I was using with kicked me out of the apartment. They're like, you can't live here anymore. You have a really bad problem and you need to deal with it. And it was like, after the people that I use drugs with were like, dude, you have a problem. You need to like, go figure this out. And that should like woke me up. I was like, oh shit, who am I? Like looking in the mirror, strung out, super, still super high. And then coming down and being like, 
what is my life? Like, what am I, who am, who is this in the mirror? I don't recognize this person. And so it was almost kind of similar where this external thing shocked me because it was like, oh, now my co-founders who I'm building this with, who we're all in this, like invested in this together. The success of it is dependent on like continuing to grow and like be able to raise funding. They're telling me that I should take a break. I'm like, oh, maybe I should take a break. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Like, yes, there was a realization of like, okay, now that I had that external shock is like, rather than like, there's some, I, I know some people who have responded to that type of external thing with like, no, fuck you. I don't have a problem. Like, uh, sorry for swearing. <laughs> um, um, and just like, I don't have a problem. I don't need to deal with this. Like go away. And like, they'll respond like that. So I guess I was, I, I'll acknowledge that I did have the awareness to be like, yes, okay. I do need to step away. This is like the thing that's like, this is my bottom. Like there's a saying in the programs, like your bottom is where you stop digging. And it's like, that was where my bottom was. I chose to stop digging and get help. Hmm. How are you today? How are you doing? I'm, that's, that's a good question. I'm doing better. I'm more grounded, more, um, more comfortable with what I, and like aware of what I want from life. Um, I, uh, like I, we were talking before we started recording about the morning routine and I am mm. loving my morning routine. Like I wake up at like seven ish. I go for a 30 to hour, 30 minutes, hour long walk. I have breakfast. Um, I'll do some like NA step work. I'll go to an NA meeting and now I'm learning how to dance. And, <laughs> and that's, that's pretty cool. So I'm just like, I'm finding like mm. my priority for moving forward is like finding joy. It's like, how can I find joy in my life and do the things that I want to do with my life? And so that's been a really powerful sentiment. And it's almost like shifting. It's like, what is the priority? Like, what is that end goal that I want to get towards? And it, it's kind of shifted. It's more about like, yes, I want to be even more like, yes, I had talked a lot about mental health before I'd worked a lot on my mental health before, but I was still like, I think there's parts of it where I was still like halfway in, like I was, yes, like very, like very much into it and like working on therapy, like all of these things. But I think now I'm like fully on board um, and like continue, like really invested in the program and I'm seeing all the benefits that um, it is having for me and continuing to have. And so I feel optimistic about where my life is headed um, and the, the, the habits that I'm starting to build and the practices I'm starting to build um, to live a healthier life. Mm. And also redefine like, what is, what is the goal in life is the goal to make money and be successful and blah, blah, blah. It feels like a beautiful place to sort of start wrapping up. Um, and I want to just thank you from a, and there was some call for an invite. <laughs> that was actually the, <laughs> the notification for my NA meeting at 10 a.m. So okay. <laughs> in half an hour. So, so you see, I was yeah. right. Um, yeah. But no, thank you so much. I mean, on a personal level, I wanted to thank you because I was coming and Nictarius knows because I, I talked to him before we started recording that today was sort of a tough day for me. And it was related to a co-founders and, and, and finding my own way. And one thing that you said, which was around that the first step is to admit that you have a problem felt that it actually lightened up on my end uh, because I think that's where I am uh, also myself and 
it sort of feels like you want to tear up even now. But I want to thank you for coming, you know, on air and just having this very honest conversations with us. And what a beautiful journey you are on. So this was Stefan. Who is next for you, Vladi? Um, I have another outlier of our um, selection. So He's a leading psychiatrist, academic, and a legend, certainly in my world. His name is Dr. Michael Freeman. And I remember the moment when I read his article that was introducing the relationship between mental health and entrepreneurship. And I also remember the moment when his email came and arrived to our hello at the future farm inbox. And, and I freaked out and, and emailed you. And I was like, oh my God, Michael Freeman wrote. But that's not the reason why he's in the best of. Um, we wanted to go much deeper into understanding the relationship between mental health and entrepreneurs and what's really happening for entrepreneurs as a sort of a specific group of people. And uh, are we? is there a predisposition why we pick this profession? Uh, what's the DNA relationship to mental health of entrepreneurs? Um, and it's insightful. It talks about the different scale as well as different type of mental health challenges that entrepreneurs go through. So enjoy it. This is Michael Freeman. It's interesting because you started by saying that when it comes to the mental, the manifestation of the mental health problems, challenges, um, is pretty much the same between entrepreneurs and the rest of the population. I think one of the reasons we're doing what we're doing is because we feel that the stigma attached to it is always higher because it sort of stands against the glorification of the risk taker and the achiever and the job creator and the innovator. Um, and is this, have you experienced something similar or are we, are we here on the wrong path with, with our assumption? You're, you're definitely on the right path. The, oh, the total incidence might be a little bit higher among entrepreneurs. In our most recent study, we found <clears throat> that it was about 38% of entrepreneurs have one or more lifetime psychiatric conditions. Uh, whereas for the general population, it's more like 30%. So it might be a little elevated among the entrepreneurs. What What's significant, though, is the kinds of mental health mm -hmm. issues that entrepreneurs have. And uh, yes, the, uh, the stigma is, I, I don't know if the stigma is higher, but the stigma is quite prominent mm -hmm. uh, for those people. But also the self-stigma and the self-deprecation and the, the feeling of needing to kind of hide something about who you really are and the feelings of shame that go with that. And for many entrepreneurs, this starts very early in life. Um, if you look at the, uh, the data on uh, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, for example, that's one of the conditions that's very common among entrepreneurs, much more common among entrepreneurs than it is with the managers and the employees. Those kids, those kids with ADD grew up being criticized, being blamed, being um, embarrassed, being shamed. And by the time they get to be young adults, they already have low self-esteem. Uh, and so 
when you go from being a kind of a disruptive adolescent with ADHD who's getting thrown out of your class and is getting, you know, good enough grades but not living up to your potential and you're the class clown and a troublemaker and um, then and disruptive and the system is telling you that you're a problem. And then fast forward 10 years later, you're building a business, you've created 20 jobs, you uh, hired all of the A students from the class you got kicked out of to help you. It's, you're the same disruptive kid, but now as a disruptor, you're looked at in a totally different way, but you as a person haven't changed. So when you, when you overlay this kind of the stigma and the negative um, images on these entrepreneurs, it's touching on something that they're already from childhood set up to be, to be particularly sensitive to. Mm. And I think, you know, I think that part of it contributes to the culture of entrepreneurship, you know, among entrepreneurs, if you talk to them, if you talk to founders, what you often hear is we're crushing it and we're killing it and we're knocking it out of the park and uh, everything is great and the world loves our product. And uh, it, it's kind of hyperbolic. It's, uh, it's, there's an exaggerated sense of success that, and enthusiasm that gets projected in a way. I, I feel like for many people, that's kind of covering over and filling this vacuum of low self-esteem that kind of people bring with them on this journey to uh, to entrepreneurship. Mm. I was actually interested is, to, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Well, I was going to say the reality is a lot of entrepreneurs are otherwise unemployable and they, they, they don't want to hold a job and they can't hold a job. And so you can imagine what that does, the, the emotional impact of that. One guy told me that uh, he, he's an, a serial entrepreneur and he, he says the entrepreneurs, we live in the remote suburbs of cities that we want to improve and empower to succeed where we'll never be accepted as citizens. Mm. That, that's a beautiful visualization of, of, of what you just said, right? It's that, that unemployability people sometimes mention, right? And sometimes it's a quip, it's a joke. Um, I can't help just look at it my own path. And I was such a fully functioning employee and I was very happy to, to submit to the corporate structures. And then when I, when I left that world and I look back, I really can't imagine going back. So there is something about this, having crossed that path where you recognize the possibilities of the risk taking and, and the, the beauty of unemployability, but that's, that's an aside. Uh, I know that well, Vladi had a sense question. Of freedom that goes with it. Oh. And ownership. And, uh, and ownership. Yes. And, and the, the creativity and the ability to sort of imagine and direct your own future rather than following the steps up the ladder in a corporation. Mm. Michael, the, the new fact for me today from what you shared versus what I sort of was keeping in my mind when I also read the study is that I, 
I was with the assumption that what differentiate the entrepreneurs big time in terms of the mental health is the uh, the scale. So it was the 72% of entrepreneurs compared to general public, right? So that was sort of the data point that I was working with. It's uh, There's a little nuance because the what the study found is that 72% of entrepreneurs are affected by mental health directly or indirectly. So what, what that means is if you're an entrepreneur, it's there's a conservatively a real conservative realistic 38% likelihood that you have one or more diagnosable mental health conditions but if you look at the first degree family members the parents the siblings and the children of entrepreneurs what you find is an elevated level of mental health issues in the very in the nuclear family in the close families and so entrepreneur so why that's relevant is that the mental health conditions are associated with superpowers with traits that allow entrepreneurs to succeed and it often turns out that the entrepreneur has a more severely mentally ill sibling or parent or child, and that the entrepreneur kind of inherited like just the right amount of energy, just the right amount of extroversion, just the right amount of creativity, just the right amount of curiosity, just the right amount of open-mindedness to be very good at entrepreneurship, but that other people in the family have too much and they have sim- levels of symptoms that cause disabilities rather than driving the success. And so entrepreneurs, even if, you, even if you're an entrepreneur with no mental health issues whatsoever, highly likely that somebody very close to you does mm-hmm. have a mental health problem and that you've lived your entire life with a disabled sibling or with a parent who's an alcoholic or with a kid who's in a special needs school someplace. Uh, so it's really this bigger context. That's the 72%. Uh, it's that, that the entrepreneurs live in this world of, of just a different mental health perspective. So we've got a little bit of psychology with Michael Freeman, and now we are going a little bit in the similar space, but yeah, introducing Nectarius, who's our next best of. Um, our next guest is Noah Matz. Noah Matz is a psychologist, psychiatrist, but also the operating partner at F2 Venture Capital in Israel. Uh, I was really intrigued when I was introduced to Noah because you don't see very often that a venture capital firm, a VC fund is hiring a psychologist to be a partner. Um, and and uh, it was one of those moments where we had the first conversation, there was again so much energy in the room, but also finding out how um, a VC, this particular VC looks at uh, the engagement with startups, their responsibility and duty of care towards the companies that they invest in. So they've created this playbook um, and it's really, a lot of the conversation in particular this passage is about the playbook and questions that a VC would ask about psychology of the founders. 
We also talk a little bit about the Israeli ecosystem, uh, which for me was quite interesting because I've worked a lot with Israeli founders. Um, so that was a very, yeah, very rich episode. So here's yeah. Noamat. One of the problems is for VCs, they feel uncomfortable to ask mm. those kind of questions for founders. Is it also because there's an assumption that when you talk about mental stuff, people always think, oh, I need to sit them down and ask them, have you ever experienced anxiety and depression? Mm. All right. And because your questions are ultimately, when you read the questions in your playbook, they're very logical questions. How did you deal with a difficult situation? That sort of thing, right? Ultimately, it's very common sense. So yeah, please tell us more about what, what it actually means that you're asking the founders. How do you translate that fear of mental stuff into something very practical and very kind of concrete? Mm -hmm. So first and foremost, I again, to give credit to the ecosystem that have been progressing on this, uh, on this note, feeling more comfortable discussing those aspects. Um, the, the idea is to take questions like, uh, can I give an example from the playbook? Go for it, go for it, yeah, absolutely. So ask questions like, provide me an example for a situation where you were heavily disappointed, hurt, or distressed by someone or something. Describe the chains of events. What happened? What followed those situations? So in this question, we're trying to understand how do the founders react when something bad happens? How do they deal with failure? And this question can be rephrased in, a, in all kinds of ways, <clears throat> sorry, to be um, adequate for a business conversation. Hmm. For example, the founder can share with us a previous failure. He can say, many times we meet founders of companies that closed the, the previous company. The startup did not succeed. They had to close. Now they're in their second trial. We will ask them what happened there. He will share about or she will share about the failure. And then I would offer the VC to ask, how was it like for you? How did you deal with it? Or even say, just, just put it on the table. It probably, it probably was a, a, a huge disappointment from you, for you. It probably was a lot of grief. You, we know that there's post-startup grief it was probably very hard for you. And then to see what comes out of it. Mm. What does the founder share with us? Just to provide an, op an open, a door, a door to this kind of conversation that doesn't have to be very heavy. How founders usually react to this when you ask those questions during due diligence yeah. process? Well, first, it's, inconv it's inconvenient at the beginning. Mm. It's very important for me. As I said, I'm in the founder side. So I understand that a, a team that is coming for me for a due diligence, for a meeting with me, first they're stressed because when you see a psychologist, the first thing you think is they're, they're analyzing me. So I understand that they're a bit stressed and they don't know what to, what to expect. And I also remember that I will, I will want to work with this team. They're going to be a portfolio company and I want to be their wingman. I want to be their first phone call. I have to remember that in our conversation and make sure that I feel, they, they feel comfortable with me. Also, another um, a role that I take in investment committee meetings, which are very stressful for, for founders, is to be that person that is smiling to them, that is opening the door, smiling to them, that is asking them something to drink. How do you feel today? How are you? And I feel like the team is, we say in Hebrew, they need back. They, 
they see me, how I do it, and they started to do the same. Being friendly for the founders and also founder friendly is one of our mottos. Mm. Making them feel comfortable. It's okay. And when they're comfortable, they're better. Yes, Nicodalius. Sorry, I realize that I'm shifting. I'm leaning in and, and it's, it's yes. kind of funny when you talk about body language because in some conversations, I'm sort of comfortable in my chair, but now I'm sort of anxious to come in and <laughs> I probably look scary on the screen. Um, no, you don't. I just understand that you want to say something. <laughs> um, Vladi, Vladi sort of took it down a particular path about how do founders react. And, and for me, this might be a little bit of a detour, but I feel we need to talk about this. Uh, because you are in the Israeli ecosystem and mm. let's not pretend Israeli founders have a reputation, mm. right? There's attitude, there's confidence, and there is also, uh, let's also bring gender into this, right? Because uh, there is this heavy weighting towards male founders in a lot of countries that I've worked with. And my experience from Israel is also that there is no balance. There's no real gender balance in the terms of the ecosystem, right? So how much does culture and gender play into your experience? Um, is it is it something where you need to adapt to, to be extra kind of Israeli-minded? Or do you think this is universal and it can be applicable to different scenarios? That's a very good question. Um, well... I work with 95% male. Aside of mm -hmm. our team that is 50-50 with our magnificent ladies in F2, I work with mostly male um, founders. And I can even say, I'm, I feel like I, I'm not even sure I know how to work with female founders. I'm, I'm not sure I have to experience that. I've, I think I've worked with two female founders. And it's, it's, it's very different. The... Israeli founder has his reputation and he justifies this reputation daily. And we see it everywhere. But in the beginning, when we meet them, the pre-seed stage, even the most um, confident ones, because um, they're out of their comfort zone, we meet them in, in the areas where they're not as confident. It's a power dynamic. We have to be also clear about that, right? I mean, the founder coming into the investor, and and there, I think there is a minority of them that they have the mindset that this is a game of two. I'm coming in here to choose. Most of them come with, I'm either going to be selected, right? I'm going to with an ask. So I guess the power dynamic plays to it. But please go on. Yes, you are very much right. And even the strongest ones, you know, we had a situation lately with two very dominant founders came from very, maybe the strongest intelligence army unit were very much courted by all VCs. And we were a bit in awe with their way of pr presenting themselves, mm -hmm. a bit arrogant and cocky. And by doing the work with them along the, the path and, and getting to know them from references that I've been talking to, I realized that they're lacking um, confidence. It was, it was a manifestation of lacking confidence. They are confident individuals, they are. But in this situation, I feel in the pre-seed stages, they are all lacking confidence. So this was Noah Matz from F2 Ventures. Now, your last choice, Vladi. Yeah, so I'm glad we're staying with uh, the women gang. Um, 
the other best off is from a very different angle. Uh, she's not an entrepreneur per se, although we arrived in our conversation to uh, alignment that she is. And this is, this is again where sort of our narrative around that there is no one sort of uh, box for entrepreneurs, it, it came up because uh, one of the angles that has been very important for us is uh, looking also on activists and people who drive movements and also leaders of organizations like non-governmental organizations. And a lot of, a lot of times those people have to drive them as businesses. So one of such uh, role models, and, and she has her absolute place here in, in our best of Naked is Leila Hussein. Um, she's an activist, a serial entrepreneur. Um, she has many more identities and the one she introduced herself with was a change agent. And I think it belongs to her beautifully. Um, and what she talks about and where I like this highlight is the uh, power, power of voice and a platform and narrative that we have as uh, entrepreneurs and, and people that um, other people sort of look up to look up to us and she she talks about um as an activist you also have to take care of your mental health you have to forget very often your ego and and i love that about this highlight she talks about it and um how surrounding yourself with the best team is uh the way forward so it's a little different angle to the mental health uh but certainly a strong one this is leila hussein Leila, so you are driving this systemic change from different places. Mm-hmm. And we sort of live through, through this ourselves with Nectaris and our team. I'm seeing every day number of entrepreneurs that have a cause they devoted their life to and want to drive it from a systemic lens. Mm-hmm. What do you feel are sort of the essentials for that movement to be to be effective? Like, what is it, everything that needs to be sort of considered? And I know that this maybe is the theoretical question, but I, yeah. I'm asking because I know that you, you, you use also the power of the word and the narrative, right? You write for a lot of media. I mean, you have an organization that is focused on intervention. So you sort of come in, in different places of the value chain or, 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 or how do you sort of drive the movement? So what, what, what are your thoughts? What's sort of a, experience learning the learned experience from your own journey i mean currently working on this africa-led movement hence why i'm in actually in kenya what i've learned being involved in this process um it's one to check your ego that you're not the one with the answers all the time i think it's bringing uh the right partners together is important who who can fit who can who can provide that level of expertise the areas that you don't have so for me, that's really uh, important because um, usually founders get in that space of the ego where, you know, I'm, I know what's best. And actually what I learned as a, as, a, as, a, as, as a founder, as someone who's led teams, is actually getting a team that makes me look great. <laughs> really? I think, I think with any movement, I think it's recognizing if we, we were creating a whole brand new movement right now, as a founder, who I, I want this new movement. So what was the first I think of? Like, hmm, what, 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 what outcome do I want from this? A, B, C. Who can provide A for me? Who can provide B for me? So for me, actually working, bringing your, your team together, it's key, super key. 
but in that space you need to put your you need to check your ego all the time we all have ego by the way it's it's it's, it's a normal human you know re- reaction but it's constantly checking it um but trust i know this sounds this might sound very cheesy i think trust is very key when 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 um in terms of approach because there's nothing worse when you're trying to achieve something or currently I'm, I'm, I'm part of the team who's supporting an existing movement. And actually one of my colleagues said to me, you know, we've got this big meeting coming up in April. What do you want to achieve? I said, I wanted us to achieve a level of trust within, because we've got there's six organization working together. We need to, I said, if we get that, if we have a level of trust yeah. between us, everything will fall into place. And mm. to do that, you have to do the work, especially I'm part of the team that's leading this consortium right now. So I, and we need to set the tone in a lead up to this meeting in April that we are a trusting, we are, we are facilitating a trusting space. So to me, that's really key. I mean, listen, quick, just, I didn't even know I was a social entrepreneur until someone said it to me because I worked in a space of development and it was only two, two, three years ago. It was, it was David uh, Rowan, who was the founder of Wide Magazine, who I met in different spaces. And then someone else who said, Lily, you know, you're a social entrepreneur. And I'm like, oh, I thought that was a whole different, uh, uh, that was a whole different ball game. I didn't know I was doing that. So mm. sometimes you don't even know that, that these, these, na- these, these titles, so I felt for a while I didn't even belong, even though I was in these spaces, but somehow I didn't even have the right terminology for it um, because I never made the connection. Because in my mind, a social entrepreneur, someone who went to a business school, you know, who developed, who might have worked in Microsoft at some point. Like it's, it's that, so it's great that we're retelling these stories in different ways now. Mm. Um, but you needed someone to step in as well to say, hey, actually, did you know this is what you're actually doing? I'm like, oh. And then it was, it was David Rowan who invited me to that whole space where I met Julia, then Matteo, then to you. So it's, 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 it's important. So now I step in for people who don't even know that they're in that space. Mm. Like, did you know this is what you're doing? <laughs> And, but you know what I, I sometimes feel like the words are I mean are so limiting in terms of the boxes yeah. they put us in because even now Leila when you said like he told you you're a social entrepreneur so my whole body reacted because I was like no no she's an entrepreneur yeah, or she's no, a change yeah. agent who uses yeah. she has yeah. an entrepreneurial mindset to what she yeah. does and how yeah. she runs it so um yeah. but um Leila I, I love the fact that we actually sort of ended on this note because I I you know from my space where I sit here in Lahore on this on this chair um I I, I do reflect on you know you how you s- sort of named yourself and when you said like what, what do I do I'm a change agent or change maker um and I and I feel that it's so very much reflects a lot of entrepreneurs journey um and i've been really enjoying this conversation for so thank you for not tiptoeing and for the straightforwardness <laughs> thank you okay so we learned something about <laughs> the managing our egos um and here we come with our last uh, best of candidate so I, I picked James Rutledge. Uh, James is the founder of Sanctus, which is a mental health organization providing support in the workplace. Um, and the reason, the reason that episode particularly resonated with me, one, well, there were a few, but um, the episode was important to me because I've been through a similar process of stepping down or stepping aside from my role as a CEO. Um, in James's episode, what was really interesting, especially the passage we, we picked 
Talad was, what does he use? Um, he talks about therapy. We talk about the journaling that is introduced on the Sanctus platform. We talk about how being a CEO could be feeling trapped. And it was also important for me to share this one because a lot of people afterwards who are founders uh, kind of came back and saying, this really, this really resonates with me. There's moments where I feel so, I want to run away and I can't because I'm leading this. So hopefully um, people will find some, some solace and some inspiration in that episode. So here's James Rockledge. Like I was talking to my therapist a couple of days ago. For me, that's my tool, uh, my main tool. And, and I was talking about how I realized that my, my social influencer currency has dropped. The value of the currency has dropped. I just don't have the same impact that I used to have. And I still go back into this place where I go, what does this mean? And she, and I, bizarrely, I had read your late, latest uh, newsletter. And at the bottom, you write what you read, what you listen to. And you mentioned Eckhart Tolle. And I hadn't come across Eckhart Tolle before. And whilst I was talking to my therapist, she just lifts this book. And it's an Eckhart Tolle book. And I was like, oh, this is, this is a bit too much of a coincidence. So uh, anyway. Yeah, deviated. Well, well, I mean, just just to jump in, I mean, the, the thing I've not mentioned there is that preceding this is eighteen months of therapy as well, which I think is not not to be not to be ignored because that I I started going to therapy at a time when I was I was running the business and I was I was happy to be running it. Yeah, I was very stressed and I was thinking about work all the time like completely consumed by Sanctus. And I just, it's as if I had, I just, as if I couldn't turn off. Like no matter how hard I tried, I just had this constant cycle of thoughts, worries, questions, overgoing conversations I should have had with the team, things I could have said, just constant noise. And uh, I had a moment lying in bed one night. This was, this was just before I entered therapy. So this was, a, this was a couple of years ago. I basically thought to myself, God, if, this continues I don't even want to like get up in the morning like I just don't and that that thought really scared me because working in mental health right we talk you know we talk a lot about suicide and suicidal ideation and I thought you know what gosh that's I was like that's not far off a suicidal thought basically mm. you know um it's, it's not I'm not planning how to take my own life but I'm thinking I don't really want to wake up in the morning I was like, that's not, that's not great. <laughs> and it's as if something popped. And um, so I remember going to therapy and my first session, my therapist, he ended like the, the clo his closing line was kind of like, I'm wondering who you are without your business. And I remember just being like, that is exactly why I'm here. And mm. so that was 18 months of, of work really, which ended, I remember when it ended, but I proceeded last year. And I think that definitely gave me the foundation again to to be able to go on this um, to go on that letting go journey because I, I don't think I was um, I don't think I was resilient enough for it before. I was literally too it, it, Sanctus was too much of a big part of me, and without it, I just don't, I don't think I felt able to not have it <laughs> basically. Yeah, I'd love for us, James, to actually unpack what you sort of now say with a sort of a feeling of lightness, like being light, it feels light, the inner work. I mean, the, the, ther the therapy, therapy, I find is, is, is very difficult to 
um, quantify and explain. But that was that was about um, bringing to life all these different parts of myself that weren't coming to life at work. Like I was going to work and I was just being James the CEO. And that, that almost became an ego. Like it became, it's like I became like a caricature of myself. Like I just had this one side and um, there was lots of other parts that were just being, um, yeah, left, you know, the part of me that was deeply worried, right? Like scared, lonely, all this stuff. And, uh, and in therapy, you know, a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff from the past, childhoods, family stuff that had just, just been unexplored and hard to even explain. I don't even know how that was holding me back. It just, just was. <laughs> I honestly, mm. it's difficult to even, yeah. it's so difficult to even link it. So moving through a lot of that in therapy. Um, and even now if therapy feels like the gift that keeps on giving, I'm like two years later and I'm remembering conversations and it just, it's like a muscle or, or something that continues to grow. Coaching um, was a little bit different. It was a, I, I, most of my coaching was was very specifically on my challenges within Sanctus and my leadership challenges in particular, and that was incredibly supportive. And then um, and and then again the most the most um, most helpful things were were then just that well, the support network with with Sarah my girlfriend and George, my co-founder and my mate, they, that was, they were like crutches really, you know, they're just like, they're there to, they were like hearing me and just holding me up at times. I'd say actually the biggest, the biggest piece of, other than the coaching and therapy, which is, you know, that's like going to the gym, you know, you're getting in there and you're having conversations and that can be quite tiring. And then you're leaving and I'm like, what have I just done? I feel worse than I can, feel worse than when I went in, and it's it's difficult to it's difficult to um, to sometimes make the link between what's going, what what you're doing in coaching or in therapy, and, and to, to your sort of the, the content of your life situation. But some of the things that actually made the biggest impacts, and that I look I look on now, are um, we're like doing other stuff in my life. I know it sounds so basic, but like I just I was I was giving all of myself to to my work that I just wasn't exploring the rest of my life like hobbies my relationship with Sarah my family my friends and the more I the more I sort of actually invested in those areas of my life my ability to let go of Sanctus became much easier because to let go of my work when work is all I've got feels really scary. But to let go of my work when I've got other threads in my life or other stuff that define a part of my identity or um, are still going to be mine afterwards, it kind of makes it yeah, kind of makes it a lot easier. So you know, like little things like I remember, <laughs> I just, it sounds it sounds hilarious, but I remember getting a bike in London being like a massive thing. It's like I'm actually going to get a bike and I'm actually going to cycle around and this is actually going to be something for me and I'm going to like grow by doing this or, um, you know, start writing poetry. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to spend a bit of time and write some poetry and maybe I'll share it. Just like doing stuff that was actually for me that I wanted to do that that wasn't constantly just serving my professional self. 
because mm. I was doing so much that was just serving me at work constantly like holidays a holiday was just a chance for me to recuperate so I could go back and do more work yeah. it wasn't a holiday it was a it was a recuperation and energy restore so I could go and just do more but you know uh there's there are those thoughts in my mind as I'm listening to you, James, because it sort of sounds as if we are saying that I'm, because I'm trying to connect it back to the steps you you you've took right and we, which was stepping aside as CEO and now hearing you know that that was this sort of a struggle to balance and f- create a space for getting to know yourself fully. And, and, you know, I can, I can imagine that some, some of the people who are listening to us, it nearly, you could connect the dots as if being a CEO equals not being able to sort of have it all. And I, I don't like the have it all sort of, a, you know, um, metaphor, but w- what does that mean? What are we saying here? Some people love being a CEO. They love it. Yeah. Being that for them is like, a, is a, is their place in a business it just wasn't mine I like and and it's it's kind of as simple as that really I think um you know I don't there are many founders that are the CEO of their business and I'm sure they absolutely love it and they're completely fulfilled because they enjoy the practice of being a CEO and what that job entails I didn't enjoy that like If you wrote down the CEO job title, there's absolutely no way I'd apply for that job. You couldn't pay me a million quid a year. You couldn't pay me anything to do it. Because, and I'm not saying it's it's wrong, I wouldn't do a job in HR or in finance. I don't want to do it. It's just just that simple, really. Uh, The the CEO is an interesting one because it holds such a cultural weight. Like everyone mm-hmm. basically thinks being a CEO is just fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Films, it's a pride, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like it's got a mass. It's a massive status symbol. But if, if you forget that, if you didn't call it CEO, if you just blanked out the role title and just wrote down the bullet points of what the actual what the actual day to day job is, yeah, there's just nowhere to apply for that. I just don't think I'm better. I'm not. Just doesn't suit me, and I don't actually think I'm that good at. Yeah, I actually don't think I'm that good at it. Um, so it's it's just it's, it's kind of that simple, really. So this was James Routledge, and links to all the episodes can be found in the show notes on the episode page on thefuturefarm.co. Yeah, this was good, man. It's like you know I have a good feeling about this. Um, re-listening and reconnecting with the different stories. Um, it's interesting that even, you know, you do it a number of times and you guys probably can imagine that we have re-listened to a number of times. You can still find some value in there, like a bit that I I was like, oh, I didn't know about this or I haven't listened to this particular. So hope you enjoyed it and there was, uh, you found some value in it. Um, give it some love, share it with people you have in your clothes or, or wider environment and community and people that you think, um could use it in a happy or a lower moment and also give it some love on social media true (laughs) share review rate all the things we need from you because we really want to get the word out Uh, the more ratings and the more reviews we have the more it becomes visible to a wider audience so every like is appreciated
Mm. And the last bit I want to mention, we also have our new form reboot of newsletter out there. So go on the futurefarm.co and sign up to our newsletter. Every month we are getting sort of some updates from the world of entrepreneurs and mental health. There are some practical tools as well. So beyond the podcast, this is another place where you can connect to us. And yeah, that's it. I guess we'll see you in our third season. Thank you for listening to us. Thank you for being part of the Future Farm family. Thank you for supporting what we do and being part of our movement. And yes, not long until season three. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Naked by the Future Farm, where entrepreneurship is stripped to its vulnerable core. To learn more about our work, sign up to our newsletter or visit thefuturefarm.co where you can also apply to be a Naked guest. And remember, subscribe, follow and rate Naked to help share it with the world. Mm